Okay, let's get this started. Hi, this is Talking American Studies, and you might already know, this is a podcast that is dedicated to spotlighting current projects in North American Studies as they are happening in German academia. My name is Verena Adamick, I'm your host, and you'll currently find me at the University of Potsdam. This episode will introduce to you a brand new project that has just launched, Knowing Tomorrow 2.0, 21st Century Native North American Archives of Futurity. It is conducted by Professor Birgit Davis and Christina Baudemann. And Christina Baudemann was so kind to give me an extensive overview of the work that she and Professor Davis, of course, conduct at the Europa Universität Flensburg. So, Indigenous Studies in Germany. If you were an undergraduate student of North American Studies in Germany, I'm guessing you probably had some sort of introductory course. And in that introductory course, you probably had at least one session on Native American Studies or Indigenous Studies. You were then and there made aware that Indigenous people of North America comprise of many different ethnicities and cultures and that the history does not begin nor did it end with the arrival of Europeans on the lands. The curriculum at your university probably, I'm guessing, also included or still includes discussions of how colonial settlers over generations and actually still to this day negotiate their identity via a discourse on indigenous populations. You were introduced to such terms as plain Indian. You may have read that um, seminal work by Philip J. Deloria on playing Indian. Um, you have heard terms such as noble savage and ignoble savage, green or ecological Indian, and banishing Indian, and vacuum domicilium. I'm giving you a rough overview over the curriculum here, might be a bit outdated, but overall I still think it holds. You might also be aware that Germans also play Indian. That is, that people in Germany also negotiated their and negotiate their collective identity via an appropriation of North American indigenous cultures. For example, this happened during the 19th century reform movements. This also happened in the Third Reich. And um, this, of course, happens in the Spaghetti Western of the Federal Republic of Germany, so Bundesrepublik Deutschland, and the Indiana Filme of the German Democratic Republic, so the DDR. I here feel obliged to mention he whose name shall not be spoken, or rather he whose name shall not be mentioned again in this episode, because of course there's Karl May's books, they're from the late 19th century, and they inform to this day the idea that Germans have of indigenous people of North America. This phenomenon that I just described is called Indian enthusiasm, and it's a term that was coined by the German professor Hartmut Lutz, and actually he has just co-edited a new collection of essays on this topic, which should be out any day now, so you might want to check that out. Of course, studying and teaching these politically motivated conceptions is of importance. But it means or it runs the danger of reflecting the imperial discourse. So what the colonial settlers make of indigenous people, 
And the danger in this is that maybe in the course of this, the silencing of indigenous voices is reproduced. Indigenous studies therefore often stress the importance of prioritizing indigenous works and voices. As outsiders, that we are in Germany, this means that one has to cautiously frame one's own position. And this is something that Christina also explained. Um, so we position ourselves explicitly as outsiders looking in. So as non-Indigenous scholars participating in Indigenous studies and basically so bringing in an outsider position. Um, of course, this position harbors a lot of dangers, but it can also be a very productive addition, I think, to writing by Indigenous scholars, especially if we, you know, if you think about the transnational trans-Indigenous project of we kind of need an outsider perspective. But now, of course, Indigenous studies or Indigenous people have always had that problem of the outsider perspective becoming the dominant narrative. So we, of course, we're very cautious with that. And um, of course, the, the, there are different ways of dealing with that. First and foremost, you, of course, privilege Indigenous voices and Indigenous artwork. We're already doing that. And then it's absolutely vital to just keep in touch with indigenous scholars and artists and to keep, you know, keep and stay in conversation with them and uh, listen to them, have them teach you. And then, of course, uh, try and give something back. So it's not just a taking, but also a giving. One of the things that the constructions of North American indigeneity that I mentioned before have in common on both sides of the Atlantic is that they relegate Native Americans to the past. And this is something that Indigenous studies already in general and the project in Flensburg as well work to contest. Well, generally speaking, even though we've, you know, we've been talking within Indigenous studies, we've been talking about this for decades now, but nevertheless, Indigenous people are still kind of seen as embodiments of the past very often. So people, people still associate indigenous people with the primitive and with, with the past. So indigenous authors have always been looking toward at least the present. Mm -hmm. And the, so there was always an implicit idea of indigenous futurity in there. This, you know, this idea of indigenous people um, still being here and mm -hmm. continuing on. But what is special about this, I would say, movement that is called, you know, movement of indigenous future or movement of indigenous futurisms is that uh, the scholars and authors are making this explicit. So they're mm -hmm. explicitly looking toward the future. So indigenous people become associated with the future and not with the past or not exclusively with the past. So this is also, this has to do with reacting to the colonial gaze that puts in indigenous people into the past, but also really um, imagining indigenous people in the future. So. This project in Flensburg, which is funded by the German Research Foundation, by the way, is a contribution to making these futurities more visible. In this context, the term archive, as used in the title of the project, is already indicative of the project's motivations. And the term archive also gestures towards the colonial structures and their temporalities that are to be questioned in these studies. I have to say that a lot has been written about the archive, of course, and I'm sorry for not mentioning all the scholars who already put out literature on this. An archive usually exists to uh, 
but to sort of preserve the past, right? This is what it's for, it's our historic memory. Um, if you think about um, a material collection of books, for instance, or a museum space, or a digital archive, it's something, it's an, it's an item of storage. Or if you think about Foucault's idea of the archives, you know, the immaterial structures between these items, but in any, any way, it's an organizing principle, uh, whether you can see it or whether it's something very abstract, but it helps us preserve the past and also understand it. Now, if you talk about archives of futurity, it's kind of turning that idea back on itself. Um, and also uh, using Jacques Derrida's notion of um, the, that the archive always exists for the future. So we um, remember the past and archive it for the sake of a certain, well, I should say a certain narrative and a certain outcome of that narrative. And this is, of course, where indigenous, indigenous narratives and colonial narratives come in. Because colonialism, of course, has created its archives from indigenous artifacts that, that have been amassed and collected from bones to, I don't know, sacred objects to uh, storages of data of the Bureau of American Indian Affairs, for instance. So data has been something or artifacts and data, something that has been used against indigenous people or has been appropriated and taken away from them. Or, and, or they have been um, deprived of control over these archives. And this is a vital thing of colonialism, to, to amass archives and thereby kind of control the narrative. Our, our approach includes this idea that indigenous authors, artists, and scholars are very aware of that, of course. So what they're doing is they're remapping the archive. Or maybe they're, we have to talk about different archives. Or maybe they aren't archives at all. Maybe the term just isn't accurate. Um, I think archive is a term we all use, specifically as literary scholars, but certainly it's also a term that, that we want to take apart. For this purpose, Christina Waudemann and Professor Davis focus each on one specific type of space. We are basically focusing on different media and different genres. So mm -hmm. generally, the indigenous future is something that exists in transmedia. And in our past work, we've looked at literature and um, uh, theater, so plays. So now we're looking toward new areas. And specifically, Birgit Davis uh, will focus on museum spaces. And I will focus on digital spaces or the digital future, whatever that is. The purpose of our project is to continue mapping the archive. And, and then, of course, you'll have to think about what archive means, but this is already in our title, um, 21st Century Native North American Archives of Futurity, and we really hope to not just continue to put the spotlight on indigenous literatures, but to also put the spotlight on this kind of new archive that includes genre literatures, you know, from science fiction and the fantastic to crime fiction to indigenous new media, and these all of these things kind of talk about the future and we really hope to um, not just analyze connections, but also to, to, well, to put the spotlight on the archive or to, mm -hmm. to, to map this archive, uh, which is of course, on the one hand, showing that indigenous people continue to produce art, of course, and they also have something to say about the future. So they, they do imagine themselves in the future, even though we keep putting them in the past, but of course also vitally that it's not just art produced by indigenous people, but it's great art. 
One example I can give you uh, is the Virtual Reality Project 2167. Mm -hmm. That's a project um, that of four virtual reality pieces that imagine Canada 150 years in the future. And it was commissioned for Canada's sesquicentennial celebrations. So in 2017, Canada, the Canadian Confederation, turned 150. And these indigenous virtual reality artists, instead of looking into the past, as is common, uh, for an anniversary celebration, they look into the future and they imagine indigenous futures. So obviously this idea of celebrating 150 years already brings a certain temporality with it. These indigenous artists, if obviously then you, you immerse yourself in these indigenous virtual spaces and what you encounter is a different temporality. So what, I'm, what I've been explaining and saying is not something I came up with, but I'm really quoting from the project description of 2167. And of course, um, I'm referring to work that has already been done on temporality in indigenous virtual space, for instance, by Loretta Todd, um, who's a Cree and Métis filmmaker. She already wrote about that in 1996. And Paul, uh, Lawrence Paul Yachvelaton, who also is an indigenous digital artist and, and who talked about temporality in indigenous digital spaces in the 90s. Of course, don't worry, you'll be able to find a comprehensive list of the works mentioned on our website, talkingamericanstudies.buzzsprout.com. Well, back to the interview. I also asked Christina how considering this type of media, new media in her case, changes the approach that they take in Knowing Tomorrow 2.0. The question from your angle totally makes sense. And from my angle, I'm like, that is our approach. That, you know, museum spaces and digital media, um, they don't just change our approach, but they are our approach. So, so indigenous futurisms, we have novels and short stories, obviously, but indigenous new media have been very um, productive when, when it comes to that. So indigenous futurisms and of course, APTEC, so the Aboriginal Territories and Cyberspace Network in Montreal, um, they are a hub for, you know, these imaginings of the, uh, about the indigenous future. And they are a network of indigenous digital artists. So these two things are just closely interlinked. And I think and what is very interesting, of course, for us, an obvious connection would be that the future is technological. That's how we imagine the future. So that's one of our, you know, could say of our imag cultural imaginaries is the future is highly technologized and indigenous people allegedly, so that's the, the racist prejudice, are primitive and they can't handle that technology. So, and of course, indigenous digital futures, they kind of, they, they tackle that prejudice and they make something, you know, they do something with it. It's not just indigenous futures that just happen to be digital or, or kind of in a digital land. What I find as a scholar, I find very interesting is that self, the level of self-awareness on which these digital imaginings also question, you know, what is, what is virtuality, what is digitality? What is indigenous land in, in the virtual space, for instance, and how does, you know, how does this idea of a technological future, where does that leave indigenous people? And of course, um, you know, what, what does it mean to be native to the device? And I should add, with that final phrase, Christina is referring to a publication by John Hearn on the term digital native. So digital studies and indigenous studies here come together. Which brings me to one topic that both of us frequently touched upon throughout the interview and in many of our previous conversations. The question of disciplinary boundaries 
and institutional structures. Indigenous studies in the US and Canada, you probably know that, is its own field and it may encompass literature, art, sociology, language, linguistics, economics, healthcare, medicine, and so on and so forth. Outside of North America, as for example in Germany, uh, indigenous studies usually belongs with departments that do literary and cultural studies. So the approach prevalent in Germany in North American studies or indigenous studies are conducted in a historical or an anthropological context. But this is not necessarily a disadvantage because with these multiple centers also comes a certain flexibility that can ensure the continuance of the field. One of my arguments, or arguments always is that not just we, we add something because we have this outsider perspective, but also, you know, in terms of structure, isn't it great that we are kind of a dissociated network, that global network talking and thinking about American issues where we don't really, we're not all dependent on one political framework or when it comes to funding, for instance, whereas one country might become underfunded maybe another country is putting in money. And I specifically, if you think about our project, putting money into indigenous studies. So from these multiple centers, indigenous studies is branching out. And this trend is evidenced by, for example, the annual conference of the Science Fiction Research Association, because their topic this year, 2019, is facing the future, facing the past, colonialism, indigeneity, and science fiction. For one, perspectives from indigenous scholarship can offer new and productive ways to reading texts. And Christina gave as an example um, a reading of the movie Thor Ragnarok, conducted by Pueblo author and scholar Rebecca Roanhorse. If we look at it as an indigenous futurism, it's just so, it gives us so much more. It's just so interesting um, to have that colonial and decolonizing perspective. You know, that scene where Loki, where Thor is like, I, I thought you were dead, I mourned for you, I grieved you. And he was like, oh, well, thanks, I guess. And so she explains, well, that's how indigenous people kind of have been feeling. So this would be an example of applying an indigenous lens to a non-indigenous, or I should rather say largely non-indigenous cultural production. In the same vein, we can reconsider scholarly terms and generic conventions as, for example, utopia, dystopia, science fiction, or apocalypse. One term, for instance, that keeps coming up in the scholarship on indigenous futurisms is apocalypse. So, uh, you know, which usually translates as revelation, but we, we have come to know the term as the end, just, you know, the catastrophic end of our world or the catastrophic end of history. And of course, this if you apply this term to native worldviews or native studies and native literatures, it, it no longer really makes sense the way we commonly use it in science fiction films or in literature. Because um, a lot of indigenous scholars have argued that indigenous worlds have already seen the end, so basically, and they've, they've lived beyond that end, what would we consider to be the end of their worlds. So there's this idea of the native apocalypse which is, you know, the colonial catastrophe of indigenous worlds that is in the past, though, and not the future. So as soon as this term apocalypse is used, um, we kind of have to think about the temporality that comes with it. 
why do we project the apocalypse into the future and what about cultures who have already seen what we would consider an apocalypse and um, so for instance Sidna Larson calls indigenous people post-apocalypse people or um, let me quote Grace Dillon because she's the foremost scholar in this field in her introduction to Walking the Clouds she says it is almost commonplace to think that the native apocalypse if contemplated seriously has already taken place and then ultimately, on an even bigger plane, so to speak, such approaches then can contribute to rethink the even broader categories and narratives, such as, for example, on time and space. The core of our, of our project is also the argument that conceptions of time, space and the future are cultural conceptions. So that means we usually take a certain conception for granted and, you know, that is the dominant discourse, but it doesn't mean that it's, it's the one answer or the one way to approach time, for instance, or the one, the one outcome that is possible, the one narrative. If you are hooked on this topic now, and I hope you are, I have good news regarding the future. Both Professor Davis and Christina Baudemann will be at the upcoming meeting of the German Association for American Studies in Hamburg. And each of them is co-organizing a workshop. Um, Professor Davis's is on Friday, June 14th, and it's on temporalities of popular culture. And Christina's is on Saturday, June 15th. And hers is on indigenous popular culture in North America. And amongst others, the already mentioned Grace Dillon will be giving a paper. That's not all. The official project launch in Flensburg is also upcoming. First of all, I want to say everyone is invited at the Europa Universität Flensburg. Um, it's on June 17th, so mark that date in your calendar. And we will have a few guests who talk on the, on the topic or on the subject. So it will be a rather small event just for, for the one day. Um, I, should, I should tell you who the guests are. So and that's and I should I should have led with that our keynote lecture will be delivered by Professor Dr. Grace Dillon mm -hmm. of Portland State University. Uh, she's an Anishinaabe scholar and professor, and she's of course uh, absolutely has been absolutely key in this movement for the indigenous future. And she will be there and she will talk. She she will give a talk on the subject of why indigenous futurisms matter. And of course, there we will also have uh, Dr. Hoessa Moihane, also of Portland State University, who will talk about decolonial indigenous poetics. Uh, Professor Dr. Sarah Hensi of the Université de Montréal will be there as well. And we will also have Dr. Genevieve Susemil of Christian Albrechts Universität zu Kiel. And so we will hear all of these different uh, experts speak about indigenous studies and about indigenous futurity. And yeah, I'm sure we will come up with something amazing. So, as you heard, you are all cordially invited to the workshop and it's entitled Indigenous North American Futurities, Archives, Source Codes, Beginnings. And it's at the Europa Universität Flensburg on June 17th. In the end, I am, as usual, asked my interviewee for some suggestions for those, uh, those of you who now want to engage with the topic. Oh, I have a lot of suggestions. I want to talk about two different things. One would be, you know, an academic approach, so an approach to academic writing, and then an approach to the primary works. So, yeah. of course, for the academic work, uh, Grace Dillon's anthology, 
mm-hmm. Walking the Clouds, where she introduces the term indigenous futurisms and she collects certain works that you know qualify as indigenous mm-hmm. science fiction or indigenous futurisms. And then, um, of course, there are a lot of amazing blog posts on indigenous futurisms. And I specifically recommend... Yes, I specifically recommend a Rebecca Roanhorse's article in Un- Uncanny Magazine. That's also online. And Rebecca Roanhorse is um, uh, an indigenous writer. She has written A Trail of Lightning, for instance, an indigenous futurisms novel. And she, she wrote that amazing article, Postcards from the Apocalypse. And of course, Adrienne Keene's blog entry on Native Appropriations, and it's called Wakanda Forever, Using Indigenous Futurisms to Survive the Present. Keen already collects some of these voices in her mm-hmm. article. So her article is already a synthesis of certain things that have been there before. And of course, uh, Alicia Ines Guzman's Indigenous Futurisms in Invisible Culture. Also, absolutely do just dive into the primary work. Go ahead and buy Nala Hopkinson's Midnight with the Robber or Cherry Guimeline's The Marrow Thieves. But if you just want to take a really quick look at something, go to YouTube. And um, look for Jeff Barnaby's short film File Under Miscellaneous. That is an indigenous cyberpunk short film. It's about six to seven minutes long. Also on YouTube is Dana Scully's Awakening or um, Nanuba Becker's The Sixth World. And then another thing that's online is Rebecca Roanhorse's short story called Welcome to Your Authentic Indian Experience TM. Now, the reason I'm recommending this is not just because it's online, but uh, because it actually won the Hugo Award and the Nebula Award for um, in the category Best Short Story. It's online. You can read it uh, via the Apex Magazine website, but there's also an audio version on Leva Burton Reads. Next to the films and the short story, I would like to mention, of course, the works of the Aboriginal Territories and Cyberspace Network. Um, and specifically, they are so-called Initiative for Indigenous Futures. So go ahead and check it out. And as I mentioned before, you can find a list of the publications named throughout the episode on the online platform talkingamericanstudies.buzzsprout.com. Okay, that's it for now. My special thanks this time go to, of course, to Christina Baudemann, who with her well-versed academic prose basically carried this interview on her own. I merely provided some digressions and cookies. I also want to express my gratitude to Andrew Erickson, who is also from the University of Potsdam and who is also working on the subject matter of postcolonial science fiction. And he volunteered to proof listen to this episode and in general gives me valuable advice regarding the entire podcast project. Another colleague and friend from Potsdam I want to mention is Jens Tem, because he also works in indigenous studies and he often shared his work with me so that I could remain somewhat in touch with the field over the last couple of years. I also want to thank, of course, Professor Nicole Waller for her continuous support and our Wirskraft, Anja Solimnes, who is currently working on the podcast's visual appearance. Talking American Studies is on Facebook and Twitter and can be reached via email under talkingamericanstudies at posteo.net. You can follow the podcast and maybe please share it via Spotify, iTunes, or the current homepage, talkingamericanstudies.buzzsprout.com. I hope, I really hope, you enjoyed this episode and that you'll listen in again. Bye!
Teşekkür ederim. Teşekkür ederim. Evet, 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 teşekkür ederim.